you live in Stockton right now, right? I live in Lodi, actually. I was okay. born in Stockton, and I've lived there most most of my life, but no, I live in Lodi now. So I've got Lodi Zone, Nick Foster. Do you go by Nicholas or Nick? I go by Nicholas when I tell people my name or when I fill out paperwork, but I go by Nick. And then you just let them call you Nick? Yeah. Yeah. I, I spent most of my life being called Pat. The only people that didn't call me Pat were girls that liked me. That was like how I could tell. If oh, they call wow. me Patrick, I'm like, oh, you see me as something more than just a knucklehead. Yeah. Do you, did you ask for Pat or did that just naturally develop? No, I didn't like Pat um, because my introduction to Pat was when I moved to Baltimore City in first grade. Apparently, I didn't really watch a lot of TV and stuff and I didn't have cable and I wasn't usually allowed to stay up late. But on Saturday, Saturday Night Live, there was this skit called It's Pat of this this gender neutral woman okay and all of the kids immediately started making fun of me and being like oh it's pat and i didn't know what it was but they were calling me a girl and then i found that out and i was like oh i don't like this yeah no not a good feeling i'm sure no i was i was already awkward enough about my identity being a extremely pale scrawny kid in a neighborhood that didn't have many pale white kids and being a transplant and all of that stuff. So being called a girl on top of that was annoying. Yeah, to builds, say the least. Builds character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You grew up in Stockton? Yeah, well, so I've been all over California, but uh, was born in Stockton, probably lived there until about six, and then I moved to McLeod, which is Northern California near Mount Shasta. Lived there for kindergarten and first grade, and then moved back to Stockton, lived there for some middle school, or actually no, elementary school, then to Lodi for middle and high school. And then halfway through high school, my parents had moved to Fresno. And they let me stay to go to Lodi High so I could be with my friends. But uh, I, I, as soon as I was in Lodi with just my sister and brother-in-law, I was staying up until like 4 a.m. watching movies. And then I would go to sleep wake up around 11 and then I would go to fourth period sometimes or sometimes I would just go to lunch and then I would just hang out at lunch, sometimes go to the second lunch and then I would just go home. So I did that for probably about a semester before they were like, okay, you have to move to Fresno and I finished up or I didn't finish high school, but I did that there. Was McLeod near Dunsmere? Uh, maybe I, it's, it's near, um, Mount Shasta, and there's a, I think Black Butte is the other mountain that's up there, uh, close to Wairika-ish. What was your family doing up there? Uh, my dad, or well, my stepdad worked at a mill, um, and my mom, what did she do? The mill was what brought them there. No, no. So my mom and dad met while we were up there. Okay. My mom and stepdad, we met while they were up there. Um, they met, they always say they met at church, but it was a bar. Um, but yeah, they met up there and I was six at the time. So we we're living in an apartment. I was going to McLeod elementary school where I met my, uh, my first girlfriend, Catherine. Good times. I also had my first kiss at that apartment complex. It was with a girl named Brittany and a, uh, bully dared me to French kiss her. I didn't know what a French kiss was at six. Um, so I think we just touched tongues and then I walked to the edge of the pool and puked. 
<laughs> yeah. I, I started trying to work that into a bit recently. I'm not sure where to go with it, but that's a hundred percent true story. Girls are gross. <laughs> did you did you grow up kind of with uh Dooley? Come here, honey. You gotta lay down. Lay down. That tail's too happy. Lay down. Now at the bar I was like man that must hurt hitting that tail against that wood I don't think she has any nerves left in it <laughs> she's almost had it amputated a couple of times really catching it on on nails and stuff and ripping it open fully calloused over now yeah um, so you were saying that you didn't necessarily grow up with a ton of freedom up until high school um, I would say I did uh, like I remember when we were living in McLeod, things were really cheap back then. You could buy a, a Tootsie Roll at the corner store, which I would walk to the corner store. You could buy a Tootsie Roll at the corner store for a penny. So sometimes I would just take a dollar and get like a hundred Tootsie Rolls, like the different flavored ones, the chocolate ones, the like blueberry, raspberry. But yeah, and, and that, when I look back, I don't think it was that far of a walk, but I was six. So, you know, it was a pretty good, pretty good walk for a kid. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I grew up in really urban areas and I gravitate to more of the country life. Um, but the, the relative distances when you live in the city versus the country are a lot different because it takes you the same amount of time to get places, mm -hmm. but walking city blocks feels like it's farther than just walking down a country road. Yeah. Um, or feels like it's the same distance I should say. Um, even, even if you're not walking nearly as far, were you as a kid interested in comedy? Uh, I was funny. I was always kind of naturally funny. And I guess I would say I was in the class clown realm, but I wasn't really a disruption, but just naturally pointing things out or saying funny stuff just because, uh, but I never, I, and that was something I remember being asked a lot, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I would, just was like, I have no idea at all. And I, never, I don't remember ever being like either astronaut, firefighter, anything like that. Definitely comedian probably wasn't on the list, but I was just like, there's so many choices. Like, why do I have to pick something? Because I imagine that I, what I've noticed is like, whatever direction you decide to ch take, a lot of times that changes for whatever reason. So I was just like, I don't know. Someday I'll know maybe. Um, but I was just like never going to say, hey, I have to pick this and that's what I'm going to go with. I don't like being trapped in like a box or direction that I have to go. Kind of like just going with the flow. There are people who at a young age know exactly what they want to do. I One of my best friends knew he wanted to engineer flight, like be an aeronautical engineer mm -hmm. when he was in middle school. Wow. And he planned that trajectory out perfectly. He was interning at NASA before he was 21. Wow. Ended up working with Boeing and just boom, boom, boom. But I certainly was in your camp where I had no idea what I wanted to do. And I think that what most people in that camp end up doing that brings them to satisfaction is getting to a point where they start figuring out what they don't want to do. And that almost narrows down where they should be. Yeah. I just in that realm, I, uh, 
visited my friend who was working in Yosemite about a month and a half ago. I stayed with her for a couple of days because uh, it was her last couple of days working there. And there was a girl she introduced me to who was 19 and she's working for, it's called the C's. It's three C's. It's like a California something, but they do like firefighting and stuff like that. And this girl's already a firefighter at 19. And my friend was like, she's accomplished so much. She's done so many things. And I was like, well, she picked her passion. She focused on that and that's what she knew she wanted to do. And I was just telling her like, just because you don't have that thing yet, that's the reason you didn't automatically get there is because you haven't chosen that thing that you're so passionate about that you're going to commit to until you get to it, which in our case, it's like, I know what things I don't want to do. And I'm, I, I have a lot of minimal skills, jack of all trades, master of none kind of thing, Sure. which I'm happy to be that because I have a lot of knowledge on things that I wouldn't say a lot of people do have knowledge on, but it'll just be random things that pop into my head. I'm like, Oh, I know about that. Sure. In my multiple professions that I've had over and over, I'll find myself at the job, mm-hmm. newish to the job, newish to the industry, and I'll start comparing myself to people there. And I'll, I'll do that. I'll be like, they're so far ahead of me. That sucks. Why aren't I at that point? And my brain will forget that I don't really want to be doing this. Mm-hmm. And the reality, as long as I could pay my way, pay my bills, keep a roof over my head, is for me, I needed to get out of that job as quickly as possible, not have more progress yeah. than these people I'm watching. But then I'll find myself in the new industry and forget that again. And I think at this point I know where I'm going for the most part, but I also do a few different things. So. It'll be interesting to see when I'm an old man, if I'm still a jack of all trades for money or if my income comes from just one or two things and the rest is just fun knowledge to augment the rest of my life. Yeah. I noticed that with, uh, a lot of things where you notice people are good at it. It's because they have done it for so long, but that feeling that we get of not meeting that level is because we're looking at them thinking we should be there. But I think a lot of those things are, or I like to put them in the same scope as like someone who's taller is just probably going to be a faster runner. I can't change that. And I don't usually look back and say, because I missed that opportunity, I have, it has been a detriment to me in that same aspect of being easygoing. I'm just like, here I am in this place. When something bad happens, I just kind of like let it brush over me. I don't let that stuff bother me. So I live a pretty stress-free life, but um, I also don't make those comparisons. It's good to see people where they're at, but I don't feel like I'm missing out. If I wanted to be there, I would have gotten there. How old are you? 33. You are a very easygoing guy. Are you internally calm? Are you peaceful? Definitely. Um, I usually don't even like... I'm not even, I always say it, tell people I'm not like a critical thinker. So sometimes if I'm posed a question, I'm just like, oh, I never really thought about that. Or people will hear someone say something and they're like, what do they really mean by that? And I'm all like face value. Exactly what I say is what I mean. Exactly what other people say. I assume that's what they mean. So they're like, oh, you're wearing that today. And I'm like, yes, these are my clothes. Something I've enjoyed about our conversations Often I'll find myself in a conversation with a guy 
and they'll find out about things I'm involved with, let's say the fighting, Mm -hmm. and they'll start trying to talk fighting with me and almost show me what they know. and, Uh And I like how we'll get onto a subject that maybe you and I both don't know anything about or maybe I know know about and you don't and sometimes you'll just be like yeah I don't care about that (laughs) it's like that's great yeah like now I can learn what you do care about Mm -hmm. you know instead of having half-baked conversations about nothing yeah yeah were you always peaceful yeah I would say so I don't remember ever being like I definitely get frustrated about stuff um but usually it's about something super trivial, like something that just another thing went wrong and it was like something that just frustrated me and I'll just be like, like angry for like a, a tenth of a second, two seconds, you know, and then it's just kind of over. Um, and then when it comes to like more serious things, I wouldn't say I let those things bother me for long or even like preemptive things some people worry about like oh there will be an earthquake or when 2012 happened I remember my friend was like worried that the world was going to end and I was like we will cross that bridge when we come to it same thing with the car like I was just in an accident the other day not a bad accident but um I don't go into the car and go okay there's a good chance or there's a chance or even like a one percent chance that I'm going to get into an accident I just go I'm going to get to my destination and then if I don't that's when I'll worry about that problem Humans are funny about the world ending. The world could end any day. Mm -hmm. Asteroid could hit us. So many people live in places where a volcano could erupt, Mm -hmm. extinction level events, and they don't wake up concerned about that at all. But then you notice every 10 years when something perceived as serious happens, just like COVID, Mm -hmm. for at least a couple of weeks, everybody started thinking the world might end. And then other folks we saw hold on to that for years. And day after day, the world wasn't ending, but they still almost enjoyed that process Mm -hmm. of thinking the world might end. And I know if I really thought the world was going to end, I would be out there trying to make the most of my final moments. Yep. But so many humans tend to react by just freezing. Yep. And, and have, making the mantra the world is ending their focal point. Mm-hmm. It's hard enough for people to make the most out of their lives. I think for folks that do riskier things, could be fighting fires, but also I see stand-up comedy as something that's risky. You have to kind of come to terms with that on a regular basis that this might end yeah, and then become okay with it. How long have you been doing stand-up comedy seriously? Seriously since June 19th of 2019. So it's been three years and three months about. How'd the pandemic treat you? Uh, I didn't do comedy during the entire time. I, I have a page in my my first notebook that I have. I just recently filled it out, and then I moved to note cards, so I haven't started a new notebook yet, but there's a page in that notebook that just says COVID on it in big letters, big block letters, and that was, I think it, I had performed at like Finn's before that, and it was, it was probably about a year and a half before I did the next one, and it was comedy in the park in Sacramento. Um, 
so yeah, that was there was just a big chunk where there was nothing in that notebook. So I wanted to commemorate it with writing COVID across it to show why I wasn't doing anything. Were you pretty sure you'd be back to it when the pause happened? Or did you have some times where you thought maybe this is, that was it? No, I definitely knew I would be back. Um, and then uh, people have asked me like, hey, like where do you see yourself or where do you want to go with comedy? And I remember at the beginning I was just like, I like doing this and it's fun and that's why I'm doing it. I don't see an end game where I have like a special or I would like to travel, which is what I'm trying to do with my free time now is to just go to a city, maybe stay with some friends for like a week and just do some open mics, do some networking and stuff like that. But um, I'm just enjoying the fact that I'm doing it. And I like, I like the writing part, but I never like write on purpose or almost never I just think of an idea and I put it in my phone or I say something in conversation and I'm like, Oh, that's funny. And I write it down. Um, but I was talking to two of our other comedian friends and they were like talking about how they rehearse. And I was like, I've never rehearsed not one single time. Every time I'm rehearsing is just when I go to a mic and I say those words up there. And if I've done that joke at a mic enough times, that's my rehearsal. Different writing styles all over the place. Mm -hmm. And I, I just call coming up with material writing, even if you're not actually writing it down. But people seem to have different relationships with the actual performance, depending on how they write. Mm -hmm. It seems to me like people who work their material out on stage have a, a much more comfortable time up there and look forward to that more. Whereas people who do most of their rehearsing off stage and try to replicate what they were doing off stage on stage have a lot more of an anxious relationship with the audience. That's interesting. I know that, um, I, I think the people that I know, so the two that I had in mind, they, um, they rehearse off stage, but they, also do it a lot so I think I never see anxiety in them and I know with me not preparing I always write my set list like right before I actually am about to get on stage like 90% of the time I sign up late just so I have time to put whatever jokes I want down um, but I get I get super anxious and I but I know people who just don't have anything planned except maybe like two bits and then other than that they're just really talking and they seem super comfortable to me um, but sometimes I'm like holding the mic and I can feel that I'm shaking it a little bit. Even, even if sometimes I feel a little more prepared than normal, especially with the, the trick that somebody told me about of putting your set list on your watch, which is slick. Yeah. So slick. And then the first time I did it, I was on stage cause I do so many one liners. It's hard to remember yes. how, like what they are. So I looked at my watch after like 12 seconds of being on stage the first time that I had it. And I was like, man, I've been up here a long time but I just keep making watch jokes every sure. time I have to look at it when I feel like I've looked at it, you know, too many times, but that has been like my saving grace, not, not having to have a note paper that I have to set under my drink on a stool and depend on that. Having that to look at so naturally has completely changed the comfortability level for, for sure. I have a off and on tremor in my left arm. So it will just shake. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons why I always use the mic stand because if uh, I can hold on to something, it doesn't, I can hold it steady. Yeah. And sometimes I'll get caught without a mic stand 
And depending on where I'm at, I don't like holding it with my non-shaky hand, but I'll find myself holding it. And then that, that fucker will show up. Oh no. And I'm wondering, is everyone up here or is everyone watching me up here thinking that I'm about to shit myself (laughs) because this thing's like out of control Yeah. or, you know, what's going on with that. And a few times it's been recorded on video Mm -hmm. and luckily I, I've noticed you can't even see up there, but yeah, I have a, I have a chronic shake. That's interesting. I try to mask the, the takeaway or so two things. I'm interested in the fact that you don't want to use the non shaky arm. And I want to talk about that. Um, and then the other thing when you're on stage and I tell people this all the time, when you're on stage, what you have felt happen while you're up there is completely different than the reality, which is a hard thing to think about because I've definitely seen like felt that shakiness from, you know, nerves and then gotten off stage and I was like, man, that wasn't good. And people are like, oh, that was so good. Like you felt so comfortable. And I'm like, you don't even know the half of it. So I think in that same respect, that little shakiness probably feels like it's way more intense for you, especially up there than anyone is even thinking about. Yes. It's like when you start, start sweating and mm-hmm. I would start sweating when I was a teenager and hit puberty, when I would get anxious about just seeing girls sometimes. <laughs> and then it might just be a droplet of sweat, but then you start thinking about it. And the next thing you know, you're really sweating because you can't stop fixating on it. Mm-hmm. It's like, Oh, the mic's shaking. Oh, the mic is, Oh, it's going to get worse. It's going to yeah. get worse. It's going to get worse. You can only shake so much. Yeah. I think that I am a lefty. And for whatever reason, I just naturally gravitate towards holding it in my left hand. And sometimes I will not hold it properly to my mouth with the other hand. Uh, and I'm like figuring, because I'm new to this, I'm figuring out how to hold the mic stand and mic both ways, kind yeah. of as practice. Because ultimately I know I'll have to be able to deal with not having a mic for a long period of time at times. Yeah, And I'm, I'm getting it down. But yeah, that's, that's, I think why I always end up with, with a left hand grip. And you are left-handed like in everything? Yes. Okay. I didn't uh, know that. My dad couldn't, as a kid, when he was teaching me to play some sports, he couldn't swing left-handed, mm-hmm. swing a bat. So he just taught me to do it backwards. Oh, wow. And so there are a few things that I do ambidextrously or backwards that came in handy when I broke my hand in the middle of a baseball season in middle school. And the only way I could, I was playing in two leagues. I was playing in the school league, which there were actually good guys. And then I was playing in, in like a youth league where there were a bunch of people that sucked. Uh And so most of the pitchers were not hard to hit. So I could still play with a broken hand, (laughs) but the only way I could swing the bat was batting switch, like batting the opposite. Yeah. And I was able to pull it off because it really was my dominant, the way I should have been swinging all along. Gotcha. So I was, I was thankful. Thanks dad. (laughs) Appreciate that. Yeah. I think he's done a lot of things inadvertently that helped me later in life. (laughs) Yeah. And other things on purpose that didn't help me, but we do our best. Yeah. It's interesting that it worked out that way. The thing that he couldn't do that he made you learn wrong was something that actually was a positive. 
sure thing later on. You know, for kids growing up the past couple of generations, I think that is a metaphor for what often happens in their trajectory into becoming successful adults. For instance, so many kids get medicated for ADHD mm-hmm. that are probably just really bored sitting in class or have a lot of stress at home. And if a teacher came in that stressed out, they wouldn't be able to sit there all day in silence. And then they get medicated, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And when it works out well, eventually as adults, they find that they didn't need that medication. And if they have the activities or do the jobs that they were naturally inclined to do, those things that were called deficits when they were in school are actually their strengths. Mm -hmm. I read um, something about learning styles when I was, when I was working at my job training and there is a type of learning style I remember learning about that was, or reading about that was, there was like something about moving when you learn. So like a jittery leg or something or fidgeting with something. And there was a couple other things within those categories. And it was like four of those things were all included as uh, like ADHD symptoms when it could just be the fact that like, that's just, you feel comfortable moving when you learn it, like helps your brain keep focused or something like that. Um, but for me, like when I was in school, I was always super quiet and I never, I didn't like doing homework. I don't like being told to do stuff. That's why I don't like the being in a box, but, uh, I always kind of just would retain information. So I would listen to the teacher and then I really wouldn't do the homework. And then I would take the test and I was always getting like C's and B's on the test, but because not doing anything else, it wasn't like I was pulling good grades, but, uh, yeah, I think just we all have our own learning styles. There's a uh, Albert Albert Einstein quote that's something to the effect of like, if you judge uh, a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it will live its whole life thinking it's stupid. I love that. I think it's about standardized testing, maybe something like that. I was a terrible student. I fell asleep. Did you take SATs or were they gone? I did. Yeah. I fell asleep taking my SATs because I wasn't getting much sleep Mm -hmm. and I got a really good score on my SATs better than a lot of the A students. Mm -hmm. And that was fascinating to me and surprising to a lot of people that thought I was an idiot (laughs) because I, I had this moment like, Oh, maybe I'm not stupid. Mm -hmm. Maybe I could do something if I found the right thing better than these people that I thought were just, better than me yeah and that was nice and they're trying to tell you what the right thing to do is where yes if you have more like options of things you can try that's what you that trial and error is where you find like your passion and stuff um but the sat testing thing when i went to uh when i was not going to school and my parents moved me down to fresno i went to clovis high and the first day i was at that school was sat testing i went to my ceramics class my very first day, I had to do three days of testing or two days of testing. Just so walked right into that. Just walked right into it. I didn't know anybody or anything. I just go into this class and it's sat testing and I sit down and I just start taking this test. And it was also a block schedule at that school. So it would be like Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. You had uh, four classes and then Tuesday, Wednesday, you had three classes. So it was a very weird change. And then we got this big project it's like a, a, a history project where you had to create a magazine that like covered stuff that had happened. 
and I didn't do it at all. I wasn't good about projects. My mom and my grandma have written probably more of my essays than I have. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're, we're, I work on this project, or I don't work on it, and then the day it's due, I told my mom, I was like, I didn't work on that project. I need to just stay home and work on it. So she lets me stay home. I didn't do anything that day except ponder over it. And she lets me stay home again. And I make the most beautiful cover page for this magazine. Um, but that was all that I did. So like the third day she was like, all right, you're just going to, you're just going to go to school. So she drops me off and I'm walking on to school thinking that I'm going to go tell this history teacher that I just didn't do this huge project we had. And as I'm walking up, I make a left and I just walk off campus and I probably walked around town for like two hours and then get back home. And my mom was like, you didn't go to school, did you? And I was like, nope. And I told her that I had walked around. She was like, I would have just came straight home. And that was my last day of high school. That was it. Yep. I got my GD probably maybe like two, three months later at Clovis adult school. And I, when I took that test, I was like, this is exactly the high school ex- exit exam. I could have been out of high school my sophomore year if I wanted to be. It was that easy. What is your opinion on American education? Uh, I think it's pretty cookie cutter. But I also do think, and this is like an idea that I've been like thinking about for a while. I think that uh, one of the reasons that older generations and younger generations kind of have this like big gap between between them is when you're in school you're around people that are your same age and you're forced to be with them eight hours a day every day pretty much and that's where you're coming up with new slang new ideas talking about stuff and it's always consistent then once you're out of school you might do that for college but then you're going to work where you're barely around people that you're talking to regularly and there just becomes this huge gap of the new knowledge that's being created when people are forced to be around each other all the time and us older folks who look at them doing all those new things and call it stupid because we're out here, you know, with our own one track mind, not communicating with as many people. And I just, I just feel like the fact that they're forced to be around each other that much just creates a bigger gap. But now we have the internet, so you can learn about some of those, some of those things a little bit easier. Some of those things, yes, but we certainly see that being online and in the cloud isn't quite the same as spending time in person with people, Mm -hmm. even down to this podcast that we're doing. You can do a great podcast on Zoom. I recorded one a couple of days ago on Zoom. Great experience, great conversation. Mm -hmm. But when you can sit down together, there's a little bit of an extra element of positivity in that. Definitely. It makes the experience a little bit richer. You know, also in that same vein, something that I have noticed as someone who has done a lot of studying, like postgraduate studies, I've got a couple of degrees, blah, 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 (laughs) which is ironic because I never became a good student. It's all been blood, sweat, and tears, and for a period of time, a lot of Adderall, which was not a good thing. I noticed that a lot of people, once they finish with whatever education they're going to be getting, they then completely stop learning. And it's like we have this polarized understanding of learning in this country where you do that in school, but then you don't learn outside of school. 
Yeah. And learning how to do things and, and learning about subject matter, especially that you enjoy is one of the most stimulating things that we can do as humans. And it's very gratifying. It helps with well being, And I see as someone that works in the health industry that a lot of people, a lot of people deal with depression today, clinical depression. It's legit but they're doing so many depressing things in their life and they're also not doing things that aren't depressing. And when you work a job that you hate for someone you don't like, dealing with an industry you don't care about, and then you get out and all you do is say self-medicate or just sit and watch TV, maybe don't even talk to anybody because let's say you work remotely, there's this huge gap in your life where you're not bringing in information and gaining understanding on something that you would like and that you would like to participate in. Mm -hmm. And you might tell someone, Hey, get a hobby. But a lot of 45 year old folks don't even know how to get a hobby because they, they don't embrace gaining understanding on a subject matter they're not familiar with. And it could have been following that path so directly all the way to where you got. And the idea that when you get there, that's the finishing point. That's a lot of reasons why uh, one of the guys I follow on um, Instagram, Gary V, yeah, always talks about that. He's like, if you're not happy doing that thing, pick the thing that you love and just do that. Like, if you're younger, you have more of an opportunity. But imagine that, you know, a lot of people are going to live to be 80 or 90. So you've still got a lot of time left, but following that path and being like, this is where the end is. It's like the same ideas with those people who are like, when I have money, then I'll be happy. But then they get to that point and are not fulfilled because it wasn't really the money. It was thinking that the money was going to solve whatever problem is already going on. When I was 29, I had my original introduction to doing stand up. And it almost didn't count other than standing on a stage in front of people because the only thing I did was tell half-baked stories. So I didn't have any practice doing real comedy. But I remember thinking then, I'm late to the party. It's already too late. And now I'm 39. And I have had less of those thoughts, but I've certainly had those thoughts. Mm Mm-hmm. And I definitely feel like, all right, I need to do these things that I may want to do for real. I need to go ahead and do them. At the same time, I also force myself to have the dialogue that there's a lot of time. And it's really great to see many stand-up comedians working into their 50s and 60s now. Because for me, that's, oh, I could be doing this for 30 years. Mm -hmm. And... That's a long time to be doing anything. Yeah. I think that'd be good. I might uh, be good with that. Both uh, Gabe and Manuel have both uh, brought that same thing to my attention. They're like, started late. I wish I started early. All these other people have an edge. They were talking about that young kid. Um, that was I was there at Finn's last night. He's 17, I think. 17. And he's already seems really good. Um, and they just like look at that and go, man, just the same thing like you were talking about at your job seeing those people who have like the more opportunity or already seem like they're so much further ahead. It like 
to me, I'm just like happy to be doing it, happy to see my other people doing it and enjoying it. So I just don't make that comparison, but I mean, maybe he has an edge, but that would be the same thing as me believing that because I naturally think of words that I think could be funny if you just kind of tweak it a little bit to make someone think that same thing that I'm thinking. Um, thinking that since I have that natural gift, it gives me an edge. We all have that, that same thing. There's something that you do, whether it's comedy or something else that gives you an edge. His might be just that he's young and kind of has a little natural knack for it. But that doesn't mean that somebody can't start a little bit later and be better. Um, the Devil's Rejects actor, Captain Spaulding, he didn't start acting until he was like 50 or something. And then he was in all those Rob Zombie movies before he passed. Speaking of Rob Zombie, he just released a reboot of The Munsters on Netflix oh, really? in the past couple of days. I turned it on for a moment and then didn't have time to actually watch it. Mm -hmm. But I, I like Rob Zombie. I like the things he does. Yeah, he's he's he, it's definitely dark and like spooky in the realm of like some people are just really demented. But uh, I really liked his remake of the Halloween, the first one, because Michael Myers seemed still human, but he was big and scary and strong. And it just seemed like a grittier version where he wasn't just always off in the distance. You had, you were like seeing him up close and he was definitely scary. Um, but yeah, I liked that grittiness of, of his movies. You definitely do have a talent for the type of comedy that you do. The trajectory that I see for myself, the, the work that is really intriguing to me is storytelling and longer form bits, 10, 20 minutes maybe. And the way I see that is I need to do certain work before building into that to be a complete comedian and just to create the opportunities for myself. But within that trajectory, if I had only been doing comedy since I was 25, let's say, mm -hmm. I wouldn't have lived all the life that I've lived and gotten to participate in a lot of very interesting things that nobody else can really tell stories about. Mm -hmm. Obviously because they're mine, yeah. but also because just within the realm of stand-up comedy, there hasn't necessarily been some of the subject matter that I now have experience with. And that may end up being the greatest thing that I ever did was do all that life living before going into comedy seriously such that now I can access that material. Mm -hmm. Have you experimented with different comedy styles or were you just pretty confident like, Oh, this is what's stimulating to me. I'm naturally good at this. I'm going to hone this. And how would you describe your comedy style? So I, I definitely think about other styles. Like I want to get better at doing like long form stuff, but everything that I do is like, sometimes I have a joke that's like seven words long and I'm like, how has no one said this before? And very rare have I ever encountered something that I've said that's already been said. So, and I've always been succinct in the way that I talk. Like I don't talk a lot about myself. I am usually listening more than talking. So I've always kind of talked shortly um, 
I, and because I don't think very critically, I don't have like big long form ideas. I'm just like, that's the thought. And now it's done. Um, so always one liners were like exactly where my head was at and they're super simple and they just pop into my head all the time. So I felt that direction, but, um, I used to listen to Mitch Hedberg. He was like one of the first comedians that I, that I just was so inspiring that he was like saying just silly, silly things that like aren't even important details. They're just like a, a throwaway thing that you could have had a thought on once, but it was just so clever. Um, and he was the first person that I was like, man, I want to be, I want to be like that. And I may be connected with it because I kind of thought like that already, but I've pretty much modeled all of my comedy and the style that I do it after him. The term non sequitur, that means when you do a joke and then the next joke has nothing to do with the other one, right? Uh, I don't know for sure. Does that sound right? Up. I know that segue means you're moving into a joke a little more smoothly, but non sequitur, I think you used that term with me at caps. Okay. And I, I might've looked it up at the time cause I like to look up words that I'm not sure of. That could be right. People will make the comment within the comedy world. Oh, I really liked, I think it's not, I'm just going to use that for lack of a better word. Mm-hmm. They, I really liked that non sequitur that that guy did. Mm-hmm. And they say it as if, wow, that shouldn't work, but it worked. But a juxtaposition that I really like in stand-up comedy is very similar to to boxing someone is hitting people back and forth with things that are unexpected, Mm -hmm. that takes you, hits you, catches you off guard. Kind of like in a a horror movie where they're able to scare you. You know the scare is coming. Mm Mm-hmm but you don't want to know exactly where it's coming from. And when things make so much sense that someone can finish all of the bits themselves, because that's another comedic device, Mm -hmm. setting someone up like that. But I I think that that can almost become a little derivative. And I really, I am stimulated by comedy that just keeps coming from different angles just keeps hitting you with those same little patterns of dopamine where there's some surprise and some uh, lack of expectation. But some of my favorite performances that I see you do, they are just groups of completely unrelated Mm -hmm. one-liners. One of the ways I've tried to expand on keeping it like on a, a specific topic is I will have like, jokes that have to do with dating and I'll group those together or jokes that have to do with like a specific topic. But sometimes I find it's hard to group them. Like when I'm making my lists, I'll be like, okay, this is about dating. These are about food. Um, this is about how people perceive me. And then there'll be like an other category, which is just random off the wall stuff. So I've gotten a little bit better at grouping them. So it seems more connected. Um, but when we were at, we were at the partisan Colin, uh, Colin Casados, Nick Michelson. And on that show, I was on stage. I think I was the first to go up and I'm doing whatever joke I'm doing about hair fall or going to India. And I just like paused for a second. And then I go into this bit where, um, because I was raised by my mom and didn't know my dad, a lot of people perceive me as gay because I'm feminine or whatever. So as soon as I end that joke, I just pause and I go, a lot of people think I'm gay. And that wasn't even funny. 
like no one in the audience was really laughing, but in the back I heard Nick and Colin just start dying laughing, just busting up because of the fact that it was so unrelated and I just jumped into that new topic super aggressively. But it was just, it, like I started laughing on stage because it was just so funny that <laughs> that that transition was what got them, you know, just the fact that it was so unrelated. Well, it's a window inside your actual mind. Mm-hmm. It's a peak. Yeah. Fans of comedy who are not funny are fascinated by how comedians come up with the shit that they come up with, mm-hmm. how they look at the world that way. Yeah. And comedians know that we all have these odd ways of thinking, odd ways of seeing things. And we can appreciate when we see our own madness in the other guy. Like, oh, that's your next thought. And a lot of people to have the thought, you know, a lot of people think I'm gay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that would throw them off. That would just torment them. Yeah. But you're just like, eh. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it just happens to be a fact of my life and I'm, I'm aware of it. But, uh, I like throughout my life, I've, people have always asked me. And so I always tell them no, but it was just interesting. And it was the only reason that this even got developed into a bit is because Logan Farr and Gabe Alexander came by my house and Logan always roasts me. He just says, Oh yeah, we know you're gay. We know you're gay. He just like keeps doing it. Cause he's, he's a really good roaster. But um, he's just always giving me crap like that. So he does it for like 10 minutes while he's at my house and then leaves. And it was the first time where I was like, I started pondering over the fact that when a comedian dials into what the audience thinks about them, it's kind of, you're poking fun at yourself. But because they already believe it, that's where you get a little extra like humor from. So when he said that, I literally wrote like, I had like a couple jokes already in that realm, but I wrote like three or four new ones and I did them and it's just like a, it's just a great bit now. So I, I was excited at the fact that I had something untapped that because someone was making fun of me, I was like, oh, wait, I hadn't thought about that before. But I can definitely make some jokes around that because I'm definitely soft spoken on stage. So I think people may already perceive that. So me saying it is going to get that extra laugh for the people who might have already thought about it. You ultimately have to convey your vulnerability no matter what the shtick is. Mm-hmm. And no audience member wants some guy to go stand up in front of them and show them how superior mm-hmm. they are. And we all are self-conscious. We're all vulnerable. It's almost like, obviously, you might want to build the tension, but the sooner you can let everybody know, like, you get it. Yeah. You know, you're, you're flawed. Yeah. You're whatever it may be. The sooner they're ready to be like, mm-hmm. all right. Yeah, like it's a little more believable if you're saying something that people think. So you kind of like get their buy-in on the fact that you say something they might have not conscientiously thought about it, but maybe they thought about the two two things outside of it and you bridging that gap for them. They're like, "Oh, okay." Like he he knows that I was thinking that or he understands himself um and then you're poking fun at yourself. So I think people like that too because we are all we all go through stuff. We all have issues. So even if they're not think they didn't have that thought, they go, maybe somebody's like, Oh, someone said that to me before or something unrelated. That was like a negative thing that was said to them. Like people have perceived them as X me, me putting that out there can make that connection for them. Absolutely. I will often 
like a host of a show introducing me or however it comes about. Uh, while I'm on stage, there'll be some reference to me being a martial artist or a tough guy, something along those lines. And that's fine. And I can lean into that and use that persona. But at the same time, I tend to find that it works in comedy and it's beneficial to point out the fact that I might be tough in certain ways, but I also am aware that the reason that I am that way is to some degree overcompensation is some degree like extreme weakness in some degree is like feeling, uh, the opposite on the inside, at least in periods of life. Yeah. And all of what you're seeing is just a response to me being like the yin and the yang versus just, Oh, I'm just that tough. Mm -hmm. I might be tough in one realm, but not in others. Yeah. And that can be humanizing, I think. And I've within the world of fighting really enjoyed as I found myself around elite fighters, knowing that they are human and having the experience of learning how they are human. Because it's different with everybody. Yeah. But a lot of what they're doing... Dooley. Dooley, you gotta lay down. Because what fighters are often doing in a ring or a cage is something that for almost everybody in the world is pretty inhuman hmm. being able to keep it together and, and deal with as scary a situation as possible presenting that you're completely calm mm -hmm. and most people aren't completely calm. Yeah. And even faking it is hard. Yes. I imagine, especially when you're in front of hundreds of thousands of people, Yes. Even tougher. For comedians, for the most part, they have to fake it. And every now and then, a comedian will come up with the approach of leaning in and playing into the fact that they are an emotional mess up there. Mm -hmm. I think that's harder to pull off. Hmm. I, I think I heard um, a bit by somebody just on like Instagram where they were talking about having anxiety and that they picked um, doing comedy, which was a bad choice for them. Um, he made it funny at the end, but that is interesting, thinking about utilizing that. Because I, I would never want to admit something. Like, like, I'll admit like what people think about me or what I think about myself, but being on stage and being like anxious and admitting it, I think that would just be more... Amp amp amplify it. Exactly. Um, and then I was talking to... Um, we went to Sacramento for a couple of mics up there and Manuel Martin was telling me after the first one, he was like, when you're up there, you're the center of attention. Um, so when something detracts from your attention, like something happens in the room, for instance, um, you should call attention to that thing so that it doesn't take away your position, um, which ties back into something that I did on accident, which was advice Ryan Holloway gave me, which was if something happens in the room, like point that out because what that's going to do is everyone who just experienced that same thing is now recentered on the fact that you're up there and you're talking. And, um, we were in Reno and 
the guys were in the, there was like six people at the show and the guy who headlined it did an hour and he he uh he has like a hulu or amazon show but he did a whole hour and it was like six people and like four comedians but i i was a second one up and the the guys in the back are playing pool really loud and just i the for, through the first person i heard them second person i heard them and then when i got up there like i said a joke or two and then i was like i also play pool really loud sometimes and just for those like six people they were so dialed into the fact that they thought about it or thought there was noise or whatever it was um, that I got a huge laugh from them just for saying a sentence that really wasn't funny on its own just because I was calling out what's actually happening in the room. Yes. Yes. And they were probably distracted mm -hmm. by the pool themselves. I'm, yeah. I'm sure they were, right? Comedy is therapeutic for people who are able to do it. I don't know how that works out for people who aren't able to do it. Mm -hmm. But a lot of comedians deal with all of that shit, depression, anxiety, blah, blah, blah. And it's interesting how it can be healing to maybe subconsciously, but say to oneself, I'm dealing with anxiety all day. I might as well find something that is going to cause anxiety no matter what and just go get it out of the way. Mm-hmm. Right. And then if you can face that successfully, you can get a reward for it. Yeah. You can get the laughter. You can get the making people happy. You can get the money. Interesting. The reward. And it becomes a magic trick. Yeah. Like all of a sudden the anxiety doesn't have power over you. You're the, cause the anxiety is usually telling you something bad is going to happen or you're bad. Yes. It's and like part then, of a flight or fight response, I think, right? Yeah, sympathetic nervous system. Mm -hmm. And so all of a sudden you're going and dealing with that messaging and then showing your brain and the universe, hey, I'm getting something out of this. Yeah. Right? Oh. Nice try, anxiety. That's really that's really interesting. But you're wrong. <sighs> I, um, I was a trainer before I started doing comedy. I did that for probably six years. Um, and I would get have to, you know, I, when we were in person, because we moved to virtual around like when COVID started, but we were, were, were in person, sometimes it'd be like 25 people in a classroom and me. And I was always anxious. Um, and I was never a public speaker. I never did any, like it wasn't until I was like 23 or 24 that I went to my first, like, uh, it was like a poetry night where I read some poems. That was like my first time being on stage. But, uh, with comedy, I had done training for so long and I always recognized that those first two days when nobody knows each other and I'm in charge and everyone just has to listen to me, those first two days, especially the first one, are where all the anxiety really is. Once you get past those first two days, people have started communicating with each other. We kind of know each other a little bit. All that just completely melts away and it's never an anxious day again. Um, but with comedy, you never get to the second or third day. It's like that group then right there for those five minutes or 10 minutes. And then that's it. You're just existing in that area. Exactly. So the anxiety is always there, but that being in front of people and learning about how anxiety can be different or go away was like a really good first step. Cause a lot of people are like, I can't go in front of people. I can't talk. Um, me having that little bit of experience, I was like, Oh, I can definitely do it. Maybe I'll be anxious, but I know I can do it. You training people's taking you around the world a little bit, right? It has, yeah. I went to India four times for work. What did you think of India? It is a third world country, but it is it was my first uh, time leaving the country, my first time experiencing culture shock, and it was the best 
best one of the best trips I've ever been on one of the best Ford trips I've ever been on and I haven't been on many like that but uh I learned so much about the culture and the people and I learned so much about what I thought of different places of the world and how I compared them to the U.S. I remember when I first got there we landed and it's so humid there and we're like driving around and there's like some buildings that are broken down and like no sidewalks and stuff like that and I remember thinking like eventually we're going to come to a place where there's sidewalks and it's going to look like my city Um, and then we just turn right into the hotel and I was like okay so this is just kind of what it's like and I remember like seeing how people interacted with each other or like food street vendors stuff like that Um, and I was like things are weird like this is weird and then it took me like a, a few times saying that to, to actually like reframe it and say no things aren't weird I'm just interpreting them that way because they're different than what I'm used to I spent my whole life thinking things a certain way and when you're put in that position it is exactly that culture shock which is something I always wish I could describe to someone but you really have to experience it me saying like seeing those buildings and expecting my home and it not being there doesn't really convey for you the feeling of this is something I didn't know existed. Um, I'm comparing it to what I do know exists and then I'm making those comparisons and having thoughts about it. But having that experience was like just eye opening for me that like that a lot of people are vegetarian in India. Yes. One of the cool things is every single menu in that country has a green dot or a red dot next to every menu item to say whether it has meat or is vegetarian. And I was like, coming from the US where it's like, you have all these side dishes and you're you're like, where's the meat that goes with this? Because that's just kind of how we've been, you know, our culture has brought us up to think about. And so uh, seeing that, I was like, I didn't know that this was something that existed. So I did try being a vegetarian for a couple weeks. The first thing I had was chicken pizza after that. I remember biting into it and actually realizing the texture of the meat as I was like chewing on it, which I had never thought. I just, I'd never even really consider food. I think everything's delicious. Um, but that was my first time going like, I'm actually appreciating the fact that I'm tasting this and feeling this tex- texture. Isn't that interesting? I was talking to a client, a nutrition client yesterday who was telling me how now that they have lost 20 pounds and done that mostly by altering their diet, they now notice what it is to have sugar. And it isn't a situation where they're saying sugar's not good, sugar's still great. They just notice the changes in their body when they have it. And that's been very helpful to them in that their body digestive wise doesn't react well to it. So they are a little bit more intentional about when they choose to have it. Mm -hmm. And they were planning to have a bunch of ice cream last night, (laughs) which they did. And then they told me, well, I'm going to be shitting my pants for the next 12 hours and that's okay. (laughs) But, in saying that, they were like, I've been planning to do it today because I've had to do X, Y, and Z the last few days, and I have now realized I don't have to shit my pants every day. Yeah. And so I had the power to not shit my pants and then have that great feeling that sugar gives you mm-hmm. because it is 
uh, delicious. It's delicious, and it has some effects that are similar to a drug, mm-hmm. a happy drug. And um, yeah, I know, I know when I when I want to do that for myself. Yeah, that was that's one of the big takeaways was because I never appreciated food, but I, yeah, I have a bad, or I would say I have an inexperienced palate which kind of goes into my critical thinking. I'm just like, this is good. Like one time somebody asked me about a beer and I was like, oh, this is a really good beer called a Tangerine. It's kind of like a blue moon. I get it at Safeway. I told them about it. They got it and they came back and they're like, that was disgusting. And so I was like, I always give somebody like with a grain of salt, I'm like, if I give you a recommendation, just know that I like everything. So it's just a recommendation from someone who's probably going to tell you that they like pretty much everything. But that that feeling of feeling that texture after never having really noticed it or contemplating it at all was just an interesting kind of like an epiphany for me where I was like okay that you can appreciate the fact that you're eating something and notice a difference in it but difference in it for especially if you like take it completely away for a while yes yes same with relationships and activities you don't see a friend that is unique for a long time and then they come back and you're like oh man this is such a fun experience this is mm-hmm. so different than most of the people I talk to or gosh I've really missed shooting my bow and arrow mm-hmm. which I, I don't shoot a bow and arrow but I have a bow and arrow do you? yeah do you shoot it? I do not often I actually uh, I actually because I have this huge backyard where my, my house is at and uh, it's long enough to where I can shoot it but it had like really tall grass so I bought like 12 arrows and some string because I just had two bows that just weren't strung and uh, the first 12 arrows I shot them I lost like eight of them the first time I could not find them uh, <laughs> so I, I bought another set and so I've been I've been shooting it from time to time but not super often um, but I, I was thinking about that uh, it's like a turn of phrase like proverb something like that but um, absence makes the heart grow fonder Thing is fitting for that because having something all the time you don't really appreciate it as much but when it's taken away from you whether because it like you've chosen to to limit yourself with that or um if it's just you didn't choose it and it's just gone when that thing comes back you appreciate that you didn't have it and that it could be gone and notice how important it was yes i've never been locked up for a long period of time and I imagine well I don't imagine I know that it's a experience to a greater degree of what I'm about to say but I have been more or less homeless before and I have slept on floors and slept on jujitsu mats which is not comfortable (laughs) and after those experiences hopefully it's permanent but it's been permanent thus far I stopped really caring about how big my dwelling might be or how something might look and the amount of satisfaction I get from having a nice bed to sleep on and having bills paid mm-hmm. and having the ability to control temperature in your home, <laughs> like heating or air conditioning, uh-huh. just gives me so much satisfaction and so much contentment that I'm able to appreciate how great that is. Mm -hmm. And obviously living in America, we're around so many people that if their home isn't X amount of square feet or their whatever it may be, they just can't be happy. Mm -hmm. That's where my, my joke about you can really tell 
you know, who's never been kidnapped and spent the night in the trunk of a car, um, by the way, someone reacts to the cleanliness of an Airbnb. Because mm-hmm. having an Airbnb is pretty fancy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, relative, relatively. And but, that reminds me of something that I think one of my high school or middle school teachers told me or brought up the idea. Maybe it's somebody else's idea, but it's something to the effect of you really can't um, know the difference if you haven't experienced both good and bad. So yes. someone who's lived a completely good life will think of good things in another person's opinion as bad yes. because that's all they have and vice versa. You have to go through bad things to notice what's actually good and yes. vice versa. Absolutely. And just down to basic appreciation, if you've always had money, you really can't appreciate having money mm-hmm. because it's all so relative. And the diminishing returns from having a lot of money versus enough is pretty small mm-hmm. compared to having no money and having enough. Do you have any thoughts about money? I like money. I have traded stocks in the past for a living. I have written uh, professionally about money and markets. I don't have much use for it to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. I need enough to do what I like doing. What I like doesn't cost a lot for the most part. And I think that it very, very quickly can become a problem in someone's life or in a society. I think that money right now is an abused commodity and subject matter in this country. And I learned a lot about money through getting into trading trading stocks and most people's understanding of trading or investing and this is investing but it's not trading but their understanding is you buy a stock and then it you want it to go way up Mm -hmm. in value and that's how it's good man we've got some construction going on (laughs) that's how a stock market is good or that's how an investment is good Mm -hmm. And in trading, you actually use different types of instruments, um, different contracts and and wagers, like gambling, on a stock, on what it's going to do. So Mm -hmm. you can profit on if the stock's going to stay the same in value. You can profit on if it's going to go down in value. You can profit on if it's going to go up. But within that, I learned how many people are only involved in the stock market or only wanting that stock market to function as a way for them to just perpetually have values go up. Mm -hmm. And that's not sustainable. Yeah. That doesn't work in a society. That doesn't work in a company. A company should only get so big and powerful. Mm -hmm. Stocks themselves are an ability for a company to get more funding for something they might want to do. But once they have enough money, there's no real functional purpose for a stock to go up in price. You see that a lot in the Tesla stock where people are still buying large amounts of it, hoping that it's going to double and triple. But the Tesla stock a couple of years ago got to where Tesla had plenty of money to do whatever they want. And so within that, it being a tradable stock, it had done its job in terms of being good for the economy, being good for business, being good for a market. 
and that whole contingency of people that want it to just keep going up so that their investment can do well mm-hmm. sabotages the whole situation one of the biggest problems with stocks is that there's when they are public companies they have to do what's best for the shareholders mm-hmm. and if the shareholders want their stock to go up that means that a company a lot of times is encouraged to you know dump a bunch of oil into a rainforest or poison children or create a drug that is really damaging to people and push it through the FDA uh-huh. and all of that pressure comes from people's greed yep how do you feel about money I uh, am horribly bad with money never really had a lot um, but I I think it is I think it is just kind of like a made-up idea that has been so long going that it's just like part of what the acceptance has become whenever I make the comparison to people say like if I were to tell you that paper towels are money you would say that I'm crazy Mm. but if you went outside to the store and saw everybody with a roll of paper towels to pay with then you'd be like oh okay and then you'd have to start accepting that yes so I think that it is a necessity that we need because it's the the new tradable thing for you know service time or product but uh I never found really any value in the fact that it is um it just it just is one of those things that is part of part of being in a capitalist society or basically the entire world now is is doing that but i i don't think money really holds as much value as people put on it if i had a lot of money i would probably just use it to get things and i would just continue to spend it as i do which is kind of just whenever whenever and whatever i don't i just don't really find the value in it money is a symbol of security mhm it's a symbol that you can can back up that money because like you just said that money is worthless precious metals were kind of like the pre money mm-hmm. and the reason was was that certain metals didn't fall apart like if you were just walking around with a piece of wood that everyone agreed was valuable it could easily break mm-hmm. it could fall apart And when people were trading, let's say you wanted to trade for a wagon and four goats, and you wanted to trade with someone far away, it could be really difficult to get the wagon and four goats to some agreed upon meeting place to exchange for whatever he was going to give you, four boulders. (laughs) So within certain societies, they would have their piece of, of precious metal, take gold, Gold was really popular in, in like the Asian area. Mm-hmm. And by weight, because it didn't fall apart, it didn't uh, degrade, you could say, okay, this is, we'll agree that this is worth X, Y, or Z. Mm-hmm. And I'm blanking on the name of the culture, but there was a culture that at some point developed like a technology to, to press the gold into a standardized shape mm-hmm. and that removed the complication of trying to weigh things and figure out what this and it also made it easier to transport mm-hmm. you could stack it put it in a container and then oh man I don't know why I'm forgetting all of these countries of origin but there was a nation that invaded them and, and took over yeah. their, their country and they found themselves with all these piles of coins and because the nation that did the invading was really well established in international trade, 
they said, all right, so that we don't have to give up any of our stuff that's actually worth something, we're just going to start doing trade with these coins we just stole. Gotcha. And that's how the original coins became in circulation. And since then, we still use a gold standard. Even <laughs> though we don't actually use it, we are separated from the gold standard. But the value in gold, and back then, the the real main reason that gold was valuable was because it was easy to put on rich people things like cups and jewelry and then if something was gold plated it showed that you were really rich mm -hmm. it wasn't that practical for use gold is a softer metal right which right. is why it can be manipulated right. so easy and now gold is a helpful tool in some electronics it's probably more useful today than it was back then mm -hmm. however there are so many more valuable stones and minerals then gold it's completely arbitrary that we want it to have x y and z value mm -hmm. it's just something that we've accepted yeah yeah i think you're right on with a lot of that um i also think that it is beneficial for a successful person to understand the concept of what money is yeah so that they can value it properly for their life right? and i think the value thing like even when you go into like gold and whatever, like, you know, those, uh, those big rocks that they break open with the crystals inside the, uh, or even like shoes, people buy and sell shoes. Now the, the value is kind of like what people accept the value as market price. Exactly. So gold, you know, fluctuates just as like stocks do, but it's all the perceived value of, of what it is because how much people want it. Yes. Yeah. Art is a really interesting thing of value. Mm -hmm. Paintings, their value for the most part is completely arbitrary. It's yep. like it's like price fixing, right? A mm -hmm. bunch of rich people, quote unquote, art collectors, get together and say, "Oh, we're gonna. This artist is. We want this to be valuable." So then they start selling high market prices to friends and family and people in that network and create scarcity uh, and then it becomes established as something that's valuable because it has sold for a certain amount and now that's where the level is at right they get the level to combine with the right timing on scarcity and then it becomes something of value within the art world but it has nothing to do with the artist's talent or the materials that the painting is made from or mm -hmm. the number of hours it might take or the inspiration it's just it's just made up by businessmen do you know Banksy, the yeah. street artist? Yeah. He uh, he had one that I think he did on the side of a building, and they actually like cut out that wall, that part of the wall, and sold that at an auction. I love it. Yeah. Banksy is someone whose art I can see the duality in. It could be worthless because he's just like doing some stunts often. Yeah. But also there's risk behind mm -hmm. those stunts. And in that, you know, there's a danger to security. That's why a prize fighter gets paid a lot of money, right? Because they're risking their life. Mm -hmm. That might be the last one. Yeah. And especially in the early days of him doing stuff underground, there's some risk behind that. And he risked his neck. And I could see how there's real value in wanting to own something that somebody you know, put himself on the line to create. Mm -hmm. Especially someone who... You don't know who he is. No one really has access to him. So he's creating these things. You find them and then you find out what they are now because 
that's the only one. It's the only one that exists. He did it himself. There's that, that value that people are putting on it. And what you just articulated is a lot of why Bitcoin is chosen to have value today. Mm. No one knows who Shitoshi is, but he did a really good job and he created it and he's gone maybe. And this is what he, this is what's left of what he created. Yep. And it has a defined scarcity there. The bitcoins won't make more bitcoins at a certain point mm-hmm. down the road. I don't remember when, but it's, it's like a piece of art as much as it is a, a currency. Yeah. And it's an easily traded art. You press a couple of buttons and you can send it to anybody anywhere in the world 24 seven. And that is, uh, it reminds me of NFTs, which is another thing that's taken off and also something that's that perceived value. And I remember a lot of people when they were like first hearing about it, they were like, Oh, I took a screenshot. Now that's mine. But, uh, and I don't know much about it, but it's like, because it's coded in blockchain, it's like, you can only own this one specific image and it belongs to you. Um, like you could have a copy of the Mona Lisa, but you don't have the real Mona Lisa. Right. Um, but yeah, the digital, the digital stuff is really changing. Like what is, what is valuable and all this stuff of like the metaverse. It's like people are going to actually have jobs or something like that. And there. it's just so strange. But I think growing up from a time like we did, which is where there was not really c- computers at home or the internet. And then growing up in that time to see that's one of the things that, um, I appreciate is that I've seen that transition. So to me, and because I'm kind of this like just understanding guy, just taking an in information going, okay, I see how people could think that, um, the transition from radio to TV or to the phone, like all these new technologies come out. Everybody who's been alive for a certain time prior is like, this is a fad or this isn't who would do this. What is the actual value behind this? And then the people who, uh, the people who have like, for instance, me, I've seen that transition. So I understand that it could go that direction. While I don't think like I'm going to be doing any metaverse stuff. Cause I don't even really play video games. Um, I do see that like having something that you own, even though it's digital still can have a value, but again, a value that's placed on it because people say, and when these new technologies come to market, there's a flood of business people trying to be first adopters so that the natural human reaction can be exploited. And that is people decide everything's going to be valuable and they just dive in and they spend way too much money. Mm -hmm. And then what ultimately happens is only certain pieces of that technology rise to the top. Yep. And that's exactly what's happened with NFTs. I think 90% of them are like worthless now. Yeah. Um, and they should be worthless because they were worthless. Yeah. At the same time, are you familiar with people? Uh, Beeple, the artist, right? Yes. He does the the CGI stuff that's very crazy, crazy weird. Yes. Like it's like, yeah, it'll be like Donald Trump uh, with uh, like breasts milking himself or something like that. It's wild yes. stuff, but he's, he's definitely a really intriguing artist. And he's doing real art. And he was early on the NFT craze. And part of that was because he's a digital artist. So the thing has to be in file format anyway. Mm-hmm. So might as well make it as an NFT file. And like you said, it provides that signature that proves it's the original. And it also allows, within the coding, it allows you to 
receive a percentage of a sale price anytime it gets sold uh. in perpetuity for forever. So that's a really powerful tool for artists, any kind of artist, in that they're able to actually make sure that no one completely steals their property, their intellectual property. Um, but at the same time, his work is stuff that if it were just a painting, it would look great in a gallery. And he does one piece of work a day at oh, this wow. point. That's like his policy. But he has a team of people helping him. Mm -hmm. It's a corporation right now. Gotcha. But it makes sense that Beeple's stuff has value. But so many people who just took a screenshot and made an, made an NFT and decided that this should have value because it's an NFT, the, there's no underlying value to that. There's no utility. There's no nothing. And yet so many people were eager to buy them just because they, just like a stock, I need it to go up. Yeah. In it the hopes that up. it'll be like all of these other ones. Without actually thinking about why, why would this particular NFT be valuable? Mm -hmm. Same thing with so many stocks. If someone doesn't know how to va evaluate a company, then they have no idea, no way of knowing if the company has the right environment or need to actually go up in value that um taking the percentage of the sale thing i didn't know about but kind of gives an artist a form of royalties Bingo. like uh like a, like actors get Bingo. which if you have a good enough movie i find when i like i'm thinking of a really good movie that i want to watch no matter how many streaming platforms you have it's still rent or buy because when a movie has been doing successful for so long they know they can keep it out of yes just being free and available like for instance like um what's a what's a good example there's something i was just trying once to upon a time in hollywood yeah exactly but even like which i older bought movies did you <laughs> but even older movies like say like for instance i'm thinking of a christmas story but like home alone mm -hmm. something like that it's still like rent or buy and that movie's you know 30 years old now at this point but so artists having a way where they're getting that kind of royalty thing, I think is, is really unique to that. Um, and it reminded me of one other thing. I'll let that, I'll let that go. Cause how many times throughout modern history have we heard stories of musicians making their best music for the first period of their career mm -hmm. and they signed away in some complicated paperwork the rights to those royalties mm -hmm. and then they end up destitute because the music that everyone wanted, they were never able to make any money off of. Mm -hmm. And so in theory, it's the, it's probably not in its final iteration where it really works the best, but in theory that M NFT principle or format could allow that person, no matter how fucked up their paperwork got those contracts that were signing to still keep something, mm -hmm. you know, still guarantee themselves some royalty. And there's in theory a lot of value to that. Yeah. But interestingly enough, music is where you see NFTs being utilized the least. Um, you reminded me of that NFT thought that I had. It has to do with the fact that um, the NFTs that are created by, um, again, Gary Vee. I, I love that guy. Um, he, he was creating NFTs that came with some type of perk. So it was like you would get a lunch with him or like a meeting or something to that effect. Like, so his NFTs were paired with something physical also. And again, the, the NFTs he made were just super arbitrary, bad drawings of like uh, penguins and stuff. And he would name them like empathy penguin or something like that. Just some of his key keywords that he drops a lot. 
Um, but he, that was his, his idea. He was saying like, if you're making an NFT, give something that is actually valuable along with it. So they're not just getting that they're actually getting something with it. Are you a concert goer? I am. When I was a kid, I collected my tickets. Mm, I did too. Put them up on like a little bulletin board type Mm -hmm. thing and keep them in a shoebox. And I really valued having those tickets. I still have some. Somewhere, my dad has my original concert ticket. I'd been, I'd seen musicians, but my first real concert, he took myself and a couple of buddies to. We saw the Pie Tasters and the Mighty Mighty Boston's. Before the Mighty Mighty Boston's had that impression that I get song that became popular, mm-hmm. and they were a hardcore band, and I was really into punk rock, and it was an awesome show, great memory. But nowadays, when you get a ticket. The ticket is typically virtual and you just scan it and then Mm -hmm. it's gone. And what I would love eventually to happen, just because I enjoy having it, is I would like my concert tickets to come with an NFT. Maybe the NFT could be decorated like a concert poster, like a flyer, Uh something that's unique looking. Yeah. And then I could keep those NFTs as a record of my concerts and it could bring back memories for me. Yeah. I think that would be really neat. And maybe people could even charge a couple bucks extra Mm -hmm. or something like that. Like a little add on. I got a magnet for the last music festival I went to and that's just what it was. A little, you know, $3 add on to get this magnet. Three three bucks. And I'd, I'd probably pay for that. I never pay for the concert insurance, but I might, might pay a little bit for that. But I think that that would be a neat function of the NFT. And then on the back end, the band could find some way to create value for themselves in doing that. Mm -hmm. But it wouldn't cost anything. Yeah. Graphic designers are able to make stuff like that really quickly. They're already making all their other stuff, flyers and stuff like that. Exactly. Just take one of those digitized versions and stick it on the deal. The, uh, uh, I used to do the movie tickets. I kept every single movie ticket for a really long time. I think I eventually got rid of most of them, but I still find them from time to time in my old files and stuff. Um, but I had tickets to, this was actually the first legitimate concert I was going to go to was Coachella. I think it was in 2006 or seven. It was the year that rage against the machine was going to get back together to, to do Coachella who unfortunately just canceled their current tour. Did they? Zach broke. He tore his Achilles. Oh man in like the second or first show back mm-hmm. and he, he did it from a wheelchair for oh, a few wow. shows and they just gave up. Please continue. Uh, the reason I bring that one up is I actually didn't go to that show, but it was when we had tickets. So I still have the ticket master envelope with the full tickets inside for all three days. I didn't make that it. That might be worth something. I wonder it might. Um, but I, since I'm going mostly to music festivals, which are a lot of like DJs, sometimes they'll have comedy. I went to Bonnaroo two years in a row, 2013 and 14. And they like Daniel Tosh was there didn't get a chance to see him because the, the sad thing about, um, music festivals, is they hire all these amazing people and then all the good people are like, you know how it starts. Yes. Like the three headliners are on three different stages at the same time, basically. And that's throughout the show you're starting with the lower level people and then going upwards so you really have to map out your day and you don't usually get to see everybody or get the best place in the um, in the crowd if you're trying to see somebody up close but uh they're not doing tickets anymore now they do the wristbands so i have a collection of probably like 10 12 15 wristbands from the things that i've been to so kind of the same Very physical cool. thing to yeah. 
give you that memory, but not quite a ticket. Stand-up comedy is having a true renaissance right now. It's, I think, as big as it's ever been and hasn't been this cool since probably the 80s. So it's, it's nice to be doing stand-up at a time where people are into it. And I think it says a lot about humanity because we have the metaverse and we have all this virtual reality and we have all these video games, but people still find value in going to see someone speak. A live performance. No fancy stuff, just a microphone and a man or mm-hmm. a woman. But that is stand-up in its purest form. And that's pretty special. You said earlier that you don't have a lot of expectation around doing stand-up. You just do it because you enjoy it. Mm -hmm. But if it worked out, where would you like to see yourself in five years? What would would sound like a neat environment or a neat place to be with that? Um, The five-year plan... That's always something that was uh, an issue for me too. Like picking what I was going to do was like five years, where do I see myself? And I remember one of the transitions I made was I would try, I grow plants from time to time. So I will like get an avocado seed and put it in water until it roots and sprouts. And I was thinking about avocados because they take like seven years before they start to produce. And I was like, why am I, why am I thinking that someday I will have an avocado from this, but not planning my life along the same trajectory to think that. I'll still be here in five years, and where do I want to be, and where do I get there along the way? Where will this tree be planted? Exactly. So I, I have thought a little bit more about that, um, but I still don't have goals to that way. All of my stuff's very short-sighted, so in the next few months, what I want to do, now that I'm not working, I have a little more free time, um, I want to do the traveling, which is like, I just get emails from Southwest every once in a while where it's like $29 flights. And then it could be like, you know, sometimes it's a little bit more, but say like 150 bucks to go to Austin for four days and have some friends out there. So just staying there doing, even if it's just like open mics, I don't need to do any showcases. I just want to meet people, do it, try it in other places and get better. And I think this would be a good time to do it where I could kind of create my own little tour for myself where I just go to a place do some shows there, go to another place, do some shows there and utilize that to maybe capitalize on the fact that I'll be a little more tailored and maybe a little more sought after and know enough people to where I can reach out and be like, Hey, I'll be in town during this time. Do you have any shows that I could be on? So that's it. Yeah. That that's where I see it in the more immediate future. And if it worked out to where I was able to do it, um, I, uh, I mean, just having performing at places that are well known I think would be something that would be special to me I tried to make the open mic at the improv in Miami when I was coming back from Puerto Rico last month and I my flight was delayed twice so by the time I got there they had already cleaned up there was just people like cleaning so I took a picture of the stage but I was like all right well I've been there um but I would like to perform on a stage like that it was a huge room too really beautiful room especially since it was all cleaned up and the lights were on yeah but I got the picture and I was like, all right, I got that detail. I've been there, but um, bigger stages would be w- what I'd want to do. When I did, um, or going back just to Miami for a second, I had made it so I had a layover that night. So I was going to be there for about 11 hours because I had two things that I wanted to do, the Miami Improv Show. And then I wanted to create a video um, where I'm 
doing a lot of mundane tasks. Like I went to Denny's and CVS and 7-Eleven and I'm just like shopping and looking around at stuff. Um, but over the course of all those videos, the song by LMFAO, I'm in Miami bitch is playing. <laughs> so I'm doing all these stupid things that I could do anywhere, but I am in Miami. And then the last, uh, the last scene is just a time lapse of the sun rising, like on the beach kind of. So I just wanted to do that cause I thought it would be silly. And I went way over budget. It was probably like $150 in lifts just going to and from. And I was up all night. And when I was doing the time lapse, I was so tired. I was like standing up, looking at my watch, just watching the video go. And you have to do a time lapse for like 30 minutes for it to have anything valuable really. Oh man. <laughs> but I, I was like falling asleep, standing up. And that was like the one thing that I made from doing that 11 hours in Miami, which I was like really proud of just because it was so stupid that I was there and just doing things that are like, you could do it anywhere. It doesn't really matter. That's why I focused on like corporate uh, or like franchise businesses. Cause I've been to Denny's in lots of places. That's nothing. There's nothing special about the Denny's in Miami. Well, what is special though is the bit. Yes. And that's, I did it all for that. And it was like, it was literally like eight hours of just driving around recording myself, just looking around at stuff in the store and yeah. So I was like, it was, the, it, was, it was the most work I've ever put into a bit, but I was proud of the fact that it was just dumb and I was hoping people would get it. But uh, yeah, that's, that was, and I've always wanted to make more content, make more videos of stuff. And I see a lot of people doing it and some of them are really good at it. But uh, I always get stuck on like, what's the plan or how's it going to end up or is it going to be good? Which is why I don't post that much stuff, but I'm trying to move to that direction but I don't like go back and watch my clips as much as I should. I don't edit them down and post them as much as I should. Even like flyers of my shows, I'm like almost getting better at that, but it's still like something that I lack on. Sure. Sure. There's like a fine line between over promoting and under promoting. Mm -hmm. I will say you're good at networking <laughs> and when you mentioned being able to go somewhere and to different locales and, and get on stage, et cetera, et cetera. I do know that you've got that card yeah. and, and you, you're good at meeting people and creating those relationships that allow those things to happen organically. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it's nice when you can get yourself to where you want to be organically. Yeah. Not by faking something or forcing something. The, uh, when I lived in McLeod, we were really close to Mount Shasta. And so Mount Shasta is an active volcano that erupts about every 700 years or so. And um, I just remember that that was a pretty pivotal mountain in my life. Uh, just because it, we lived so close to it, it was just like always there in, in view. And people make pilgrimages there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's, a, there's a hike that you can do. I think it's a 14-hour hike. I think that's just like maybe all the way up is 14 hours and down. I haven't done crazy amount of research into it yet but um that's a hike that i would like to do and it's with that exact same idea of like going back to kind of where i came from and doing something that i'd have to work really hard to be able to do but that is a uh, just when you said that it made it made me think of that idea because um it's just like yeah it would just feel like a good uh like putting a bow on the fact that that mountain was a big part of my life because yes. I live so close to it, just doing that hike. So hopefully that's something that I get to do in the near future. Martial arts has been a big part of my life. And in my 20s, late 20s, really, I found myself competing 
and being successful at that. But I've always been, I do crazy things, but I'm a realist about them. Mm -hmm. And I understood that as someone really getting serious about it, as I approached 30, there are guys on my level and better that are in their early twenties. And they're the ones who realistically can actually dream of being in an arena with all of those people watching and getting paid all of that money to do it. Mm -hmm. And so that wasn't something that I ever really dreamed about. Yeah. At the same time in my early twenties, when I was uh, struggling in life and trying to get my chiropractic practice off the ground, I had this ritual of running my dogs at the end of the day. They needed exercise. And a lot of times I'd be so tired. I just really didn't want to do it. Mm -hmm. And I, part of my ritual was I would put on these training or motivational videos. They might have like an inspiring or a pump you up song on YouTube that showed clips of the Diaz brothers. Yeah. And they motivated me a lot as a martial artist, but also as a hard worker mm-hmm. and someone that didn't make excuses. And earlier this year, I found myself with Nate with him as he was doing his fight week for his last fight and found myself in these arenas for these press conferences over like where the fighters are and all of that stuff. And I had a full circle moment like you're describing where it had surpassed my dreams because I never thought that I would know what it was like. And of course I don't know what it's like to compete Mm -hmm. in that arena, but know what it was like to, see all of that and to feel all of that. Mm -hmm. And then there I was just because I had trusted the universe and done what I could do and what did feel right. There I was having that experience and sharing in that with someone who is much better than I ever could be Mm -hmm. and who truly deserves to be there. Yeah. And it was very satisfying on an existential level to stand there. And then I remember after he he choked out his opponent at the actual fight, walking out of the stadium, like, well, I guess that's that. Like a yeah, like the I think the reference I used was like putting a bow on it, but it's kind of like neatly wrapped up that you have gotten to that level and felt those feelings of like accomplishment from working that direction. Yes, and yeah. I could have never projected what it would actually look like, mm-hmm. but it was this moment of mission accomplished. Yeah. Now I know what I was, what my part in that was, who would have thought, but now I know Bo. Okay. And and that was satisfying. I think the, um, the part you said about the, the universe. So when I talked about when we both talked about it, actually about, uh, not knowing exactly where you wanted to be. I imagine that there are people, lots of people. And I think that's a, maybe might be a way of not letting yourself down. So knowing, that I, uh, knowing that the universe is going to take me where it's going to take me, like what you did, you were following kind of that map, though you didn't know, you didn't think you were going to be fighting in that arena at that level. You kind of just mapped your way out there, shoots and ladder style, just going through the motions, kind of following that path, um, and still getting to that place. Whereas, like, if you pick a thing, I think you can not make it. And, I, I'm okay with the way everything Defining goes. it. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. If it's defined, that's exactly where it has to be. 
Um, and I think being okay with the fact that it could just end up where it ends up and me being comfortable with that is, is completely fine. Oh, I think it's beautiful. I think knowing that you like that stage and you like that microphone and you like expressing yourself and you like having the freedom to think and you like packaging your thoughts in a way that bring pe- brings people joy, mm-hmm. just going to that place and then allowing the universe to say, okay, now that you're in this, here's what you're going to do. Yeah. You know, maybe that ends up being making videos. Maybe that's producing. Who, who knows what that may be, but just listening to what feels good and resonates with you can, can potentially put you in a place that neither you nor I can fathom or picture, especially with technology changing the way it is. And you might find yourself at this great level of success that we could have never envisioned or defined that surpasses that. Yep. It's funny that you say that because of, uh, we talked about the networking thing earlier, earlier because I'm an extrovert. I talk to everybody. Um, and I love doing that. That's one of my favorite things to do is just interact with people, talk about things, hear their stories. Um, but I, when I went to the other music festival I did, I went to EDC in Las Vegas this past year and it was like May, um, I was with my friends. We were at uh, like a pool party the day before at the marquee and just some, just some random couple ends up kind of walking up towards us and they, uh, meet me. We have a really good time, probably spend like five hours together. Yeah. And then I meet them at another stage, uh, the last day when I'm about to leave. So I spend like another 15 minutes with them and we took two Polaroid pictures cause they had one of those little mini Polaroid cameras. So one at the pool and then one went right when I was leaving. So I say goodbye, and then two months later, like August 12th, they called me on Instagram, and they were like, hey, we're in Puerto Rico. We have an Airbnb with an extra room. Just come stay with us. And I had known them at that point probably seven hours. So it was one of those things where it's like I could never have fathomed that I would have even gone there. But it was only because they had called and offered it to me that I bought that plane ticket and went to Puerto Rico for a week, and it was a crazy, crazy fun trip. I met some really cool people. Um, I got to finally try, which I've said for years. I took two years of Spanish, and I just try and speak Spanish when I can or learn about it. Not great, but I'm pretty good. And it was my first time being in a Spanish-speaking country and actually testing it out. So I was like, okay, I can. Because I, I would always tell people, I was like, if I was in Mexico, I think I can get around okay. But that was my first time. And the first night, I was like drinking, but I was like talking Spanish, and I was like doing good. Like I was having conversations with people, and it was... It was like a, a really good test of that thing that I always thought I could do. And it was all purely because I just, we just happened to cross paths, happened to enjoy each other's vibe and company. And they just happened to call me and I just happened to have the free time with not working and the money to be able to buy that ticket. And things lined. Yeah. It was just because of just, it's just like pure chance. Like I couldn't have ever thought of that. Thank you for taking the time to come through do a little podcasting yeah i love it this has been a really fun time right on uh any stuff that you want to plug um no i don't really have anything going on what's, right your, now. what's your social media so oh, people can find you and you see when you occasionally post the shows you're going to be performing <laughs> at? um so instagram uh is where i post most of my stuff it's uh, another endeavor you should uh, be able to spell it or look it up. It's the words exactly as they are. That's also my TikTok and um, 
my uh, Facebook is Nicholas Foster, but you'll never find me because there's so many Nicholas Fosters. But if you search by search by city, I'm in Lodi, RC, Ethiopia. And I picked that one just because it was another Lodi. <laughs> Interesting. I had no idea. Yeah. <laughs> well, right on. Follow him on Instagram. Good luck finding him on Facebook. And as always, thank you for listening to the Patrick Ely podcast. It is for entertainment purposes only and is not financial or medical advice.